Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Assistant Professor Josiah Rector from the University of Houston. He specializes in 20th century U.S. urban environmental history and the history of the environmental justice movement. He has written a book titled Toxic Debt, Race, Capitalism, and the Struggle for Environmental Justice in Detroit. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. Hi, Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California. We had a major storm last night. We got nine one hundredths of an inch, which <laughs> rises to flood. <laughs> I'm an environmental lawyer. I've worked for the federal government, state government, oil companies, uh, nonprofits. Uh, EJs, etc. So that's my background. Okay, Ken. Uh, hi, uh, Ken Manister. I'm a retired uh, professor of environmental law at Santa Clara University, uh, originally from Chicago, classmate of these chaps. Um, I actually did a fair amount of work and writing on environmental justice and uh, thinking of uh, Houston. I'm reminded. I know this may. I don't know if this is before you got involved. The Kennedy Heights. Uh, controversy uh, some years ago in the Houston area, uh, really a, a remarkable, a remarkable case and and uh, really a very tragic big situation. If you are not familiar with it, I'd be happy to uh, review it for you sometime. There's quite a bit, quite a bit written about it in the New York Times and uh, some years ago. It's probably in the late '90s. Uh, it's pretty pretty wild. Uh, so I'm glad glad you're here today. Look forward to hearing your your thoughts. Spencer. Hi, I'm Spencer, uh, 61, living in Florida. Sunny day, beautiful day out here today. And, uh, you know, I'm still stay sustainable development and Black economic development. Uh, Nick Bancroft, live outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass. Um, graduated with these guys in 1963, Harvard Business School, a uh, couple of years in India with manufacturing companies. And then uh, back here, um, small businesses for a while, and then uh, stocks, investments, um, trusts, and wills, and that kind of stuff. And though on the small business side in the 1970s, uh, I worked, I had a company with another guy, printing company outside of Boston, and we used a fair amount of, um, of uh, solvent and coming in 50 gallon drums. And we used to be able to, we started off recycling that and we could get maybe 10 bucks for a 50 gallon drum. About eight years later, um, we had to pay $450 to get rid of <clears throat> uh, that same 50 gallon drum of solvent. Wow. wow. Hi, uh, Pete DeLisavoy. <clears throat> I'm, I'm an editor and writer. I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire, uh, traditionally timber country, logging country. 
even today, if you're at an intersection, you may see four logging trucks coming at you from all directions. <laughs> I'm actually in class of 64. So to, to me, all these guys are upperclassmen. <laughs> uh, and uh, well, we've, we've, we've followed Detroit and Flint for a long time. So we look forward to the talk today. Uh, Hamp. Yeah, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm still working against my better judgment. <laughs> and, and I was just uh, reviewing uh, Detroit on, the, uh, on Google, and, and it said people also ask, is Detroit unsafe? What is Detroit famous for? Is Detroit a ghost town? And how white is Detroit? <laughs> okay, all right. John. Oh, hi. Uh, well, I'm here, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, not too far from Detroit. Uh, one of my uh, friends here, Bunyan Bryant, was one of the first ones to start the environmental justice uh, movement and, in academia. He's from Flint, and I would have had him come on the program. He's a few years older than we are, but he's got Parkinson's, and I, he doesn't seem to be responding to his... Uh, emails, but he's written about it. But anyway, back in 1990, uh, he had uh, a project, the Detroit area study on race and toxic waste. Mm -hmm. So he was a pioneer. And we've had several other faculty members here who pioneered in what they call environmental justice. Okay, Marcy. I'm in, in New York City, uh, still working. <laughs> on disaster prevention, um, including getting good environmental laws upheld and enforced that effectively prohibit new development in top risk hurricane zones. Okay, uh, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, um, I live in San Mateo, California. Um, where my wife and I have a firm uh, which consults with nonprofits in fundraising, strategic planning, and governance, executive search. Uh, I did spend three and a half years in Flint, Michigan, working for the city government on manpower training programs, but that was before, uh, before the real environmental issues had arisen. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mason. Uh, Mason Morfitt, I'm in Maine. I spent a couple of years after college doing Minority business development in New York. I can remember if you wanted to catch a cab into Bedford-Stuyvesant, you had to get on the other side of the street as though you were going uptown. Otherwise, you wouldn't get picked up. Then you tell the guy to make a U-turn. Then I spent 33 years with the Nature Conservancy doing land conservation. I've been retired for about 10 years. And most recently, I've gotten very involved with uh, various climate change initiatives, uh, both nationally and more intensely here in my hometown of Freeport, Maine. All righty, David, David Allen. David Allen, uh, also in the Boston area, Concord, Mass, so west, of course. Uh, also class of 63, so fortunately, and also went to the business school. Never could figure out why. Um, <laughs> I think about a decade in startups of one sort or another. Uh, became an academic uh, for my sins for about another decade plus. 
Recent times, uh, you have to say my life is advocacy. Some of it's been globally, uh, United Nations things. But uh, most of the time been spent here in the little town of Concord, Mass. And regarding environmental matters, uh, just a reflection of how these things go. Well over a decade ago, uh, with a friend here, I advanced a, an article in the, the town meeting warrant that the town's decisions on energy matters should be focused on reducing greenhouse gases, rejected. I remember the light plant board, yeah, we have our own little light plant stood up and argued against this. Roll the clock forward a decade. Uh, town meeting adopts all the provisions that we had proposed. And of course, it's uh, become a hot topic locally, but illustrative of timeframes and these things and how it takes uh, the ball rolling forward. You have to assemble <clears throat> critical mass. Looking forward to your thoughts today. All Mary. right. Thank you. Okay, Professor. Professor uh, I had one, one more oh, comment I wanted to make. I'm sorry, May Bill. I, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to mention, I failed to mention that after it, you know, in the Navy, I was a nuclear power guy, nuclear propulsion. And then I went to work for Westinghouse and got into the business of building municipal, building municipal garbage burners that would generate power. And got into all kinds of environmental issues with that, also hazardous waste. And I worked, then I came to the Savannah Riverside and worked in nuclear waste cleanup there. And uh, then I did some consulting on hazardous waste and uh, cleanup. And uh, I have a little background in this stuff. All right, great. great. Okay, and welcome, Professor Rector. <clears throat> tell us about your book and tell us about your life. And uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, this is a great honor. I got a chance to listen to a few of your podcasts and they're fantastic. I think this is a really great project. And uh, I am uh, in intimidated by the level of expertise uh, <laughs> Uh, with us today. No, I, I'm, it, it's fantastic to talk to a group of people, many of whom uh, have a long career in the environmental field, uh, but economic development and other areas that intersect with the subject matter of my book. So I'll just briefly explain how I came to write the book, and then I will summarize what I think is the sort of punchline of the book, and then I'm happy to get into more details. So I, I wrote this book because I went to graduate school at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, um, during the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. This is the time when uh, General Motors and Chrysler are facing bankruptcy, um, when um, you know the Obama administration is coming in, there's a huge home foreclosure crisis, you have the Great Recession, and then of course Detroit experiences the largest municipal bankruptcy in US history in 2013 and 2014. <clears throat> and this also is contemporaneous with the beginning of the Flint water crisis. So when I went to graduate school, I knew I wanted to be a, a historian and I was engaging with works in environmental history, but because I do 20th century US urban history, it overlaps a lot with the work of social scientists. And a lot of the um, social scientists who I knew that were working in environmental justice studies were working in this paradigm, really pioneered by Robert Bullard down here in Houston, um, uh, which focuses on the struggles of fence line communities, typically communities of color, low-income people, as most of you, I think, are familiar with, um, against you know disproportionate exposure to toxic waste, um, oil refineries, um, uh, incinerators, and the like. And 
since the publication of the Toxic Waste and Race Report by the United Church of Christ Commission on Racial Justice in 1987, as I think most of you know, there's been an outpouring of scholarship on this problem of the extent to which people of color and low-income people are disproportionately exposed to environmental hazards. And we know a lot more than we did in the late 80s, um, I would say uh, academic researchers, but also activists about both the extent of the problem and the fact that environmentalism has never simply been a white middle-class thing, right? There's this rich tradition of African-American environmentalism, Native American environmentalism, uh, Latino environmentalism, et cetera, and working class environmentalism. And so we have a lot more documentation of the problem of disproportionate exposure. And we have a history of the environmental movement that is more complicated and diverse than this old story that we had in the field of environmental history that focused only on people like John Muir or David Brower, these relatively elite, elite white men and stories about conservation. That's an important story and it's not to denigrate the great work that those people did, but it is to say that there's more to environmentalism than that story. But as I was looking at the events in Detroit and I was reading works like Robert Bullard's Dumping in Dixie, I realized that the dominant frameworks of environmental justice studies couldn't quite explain what I was seeing in Detroit. On the one hand, Detroit is kind of a prototypical example of a frontline community as environmental justice scholars and activists call it. Um, for example, it has the most polluted zip code in the state of Michigan, or at least uh, it was classified as such by uh, the University of Michigan School of Public Health uh, and researchers like Paul Mohai back in 2010 uh, using uh, EPA air toxics data, I believe. I, I don't know what the current numbers are, but the zip code 48217, most polluted in the state of Michigan. Um, you have rates of child lead poisoning that are four to five times as high in the city as they are in the city's suburbs. Um, you have highest rate of uh, childhood asthma of the nation's 18 largest cities in Detroit in 2015. I think Detroit might uh, have fallen in the rankings a little bit, which is a good thing, but nonetheless, disproportionate rates of child lead poisoning, asthma, uh, air toxics exposure, and the like. But when I started to look at the history of these problems, I realized that this wasn't a sort of an unchanging or fixed pattern that one observed throughout Detroit's history. Um, if you read classic works of urban history, like Thomas Segrew's The Origins of the Urban Crisis, you know that um, the long-term <coughs> problems of Detroit are rooted in decades of deindustrialization and a process of white flight to the suburbs, which was shaped by really racially discriminatory housing policies by the federal government, the real estate industry, the banking industry, as well as mob violence by white homeowners. Um, so the fact that you know, the, the causes of Detroit's poverty, the causes of segregation in Detroit and cities like it across the country are not a mystery. But I looked into the history, for example, of the water situation. Okay, about 300,000 people have had their water shut off in the city of Detroit since 2014. That's well over a third of the city's population forced to live without running water. When I looked at the numbers, there were very few water shutoffs in Detroit before 2002. Um, there was a water shutoff crisis back in the Great Depression, but then there were very few water shutoffs from the mid-1930s until the early 2000s. And it's not that there was no poverty, and it's certainly not that there was no racism. So, so why this explosion in water shutoffs? Um, similarly, I found that uh, rates of child lead poisoning in Detroit actually declined substantially in the 90s and 2000s, but then they started to rise again in the 2010s. How can you explain that, right? 
um, infectious diseases. There, there was a lot of success in the decline in infectious disease in Detroit in the last third of the 20th century, but then you see a growth in waterborne diseases, bacterial infections in Detroit in the 2010s. So the puzzle that I began with writing my dissertation and later my first book was what explains this reversal in public, uh, reversal of progress in public health. And to answer that, I realized you can't just look at the fence line of the polluting industries. These are problems, these are health hazards that disproportionately affect people of color, but they're not reducible only to the siting of dirty industrial facilities. They're connected to broader phenomena such as the welfare state, financial deregulation, the privatization of the public sector. So, so I wanted to solve these problems and figure out what was going on uh, when I was writing my dissertation. And I was doing oral history interviews with activists, but also uh, public health researchers, public officials and the like. So here's the punchline of my book. And this is the conclusion that I came to after working on this for about a decade. If you look at, basically I make an argument about environmental inequality in Detroit over the long term, And actually my argument centers on the legacy of the New Deal. And my argument is that on the one hand, African-Americans benefited less both economically and environmental terms from the reforms of the New Deal. Um, the large scale investments in public infrastructure, the creation of a welfare state, uh, the rise of unions like the United Auto Workers, uh, um, all of the changes associated with the so-called New Deal order from the 1930s to the 1970s did increase uh, economic opportunity and produce upward mobility, both for black and white Detroiters. Um, there is an increase in life expectancy. There is a decline in poverty in the city um, in the first sort of the, the, the middle third of the 20th century. But African-Americans benefit less than whites because of housing discrimination and job discrimination. And this has environmental consequences. It means that African-Americans are more concentrated in substandard housing, which leads to greater rates of child lead poisoning and higher rates of tuberculosis. And in the auto plants before they close, African-Americans are disproportionately concentrated in jobs that cause occupational diseases, such as silicosis, high rates of heart disease, and higher rates of cancer. For example, African-American men are disproportionately assigned to work in the foundries and the paint shops, and white men monopolize the skilled trades in the auto industry until the year of affirmative action uh, in the early 70s. So African-Americans benefit less than whites from the New Deal order. Uh, and, and in using the concept of a New Deal order, I'm using this expanded way of thinking about the New Deal's legacy that uh, has been promulgated by scholars like Gary Gersel. If you look at his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. However, I also argue that the undoing of the New Deal order since the 70s has harmed African-Americans worse than whites as well. And this again is true both in economic and environmental terms. Over the last 40 years, neoliberal policies of austerity, the dismantling of New Deal financial regulations, and then dismantling of the New Deal welfare state, um, and the uh, decline of unions have hurt African-Americans worse than whites. And both Detroit and Flint really exemplify this. These public health disasters in black majority cities in Michigan can't just be explained by the you know, siting of toxic facilities. They're directly connected to the deregulation of the banking system, the shredding of the social safety net, the imposition of austerity policies. So really I'm looking at neoliberalism over the past four years as a public health disaster, which has had racially disproportionate impacts and has exacerbated environmental injustice or environmental racism. Well, um, are, are you looking at the various grassroots movements that have arisen to try to 
deal with these problems. I'm, I'm asking because, uh, you know, not just in Flint, but also in my hometown of Benton Harbor, they've had yes. recent water uh, crises. And I noticed that um, even, even though Benton Harbor is now a predominantly black town, but it wasn't when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Also, St. Joe, the Twin City, is predominantly white. Right. But they all get their water from roughly yeah. the same areas, but some of the piping may be different. So it's hard to tell exactly why one would have bad water and one would have not. Some of it I, is, uh, is a result of the haphazard um, mm -hmm. government in Benton Harbor is partly to blame. But the thing about it is when they fight back against it, if they only, if they only racialize the thing, often they don't really come to a, a solution. For example, Ascoda in Michigan is near uh, a military, but near a, an Air Force race. Right. This is a predominantly, you know, 98, 9% white community yeah. in the, um, you know, above Detroit a ways. Now, they're having horrendous problems too. And so, so I think unless, you know, these movements need to come together if they're going to have any clout, because if they just do it as, it's either a black town or it's either a white town. You know, they don't get enough. Uh, you don't get enough political yeah. mass to fight back against it. I completely agree with you, and that's why I use the broader concept of environmental justice and not just environmental racism. Because mm -hmm. to me, the race class question is always both and, not either or. Um, so I discuss actually uh, at points in the book a, a working class white. Uh, people, including in Metro Detroit, being harmed by a lot of these problems. So, for example, if you look at the auto industry, I mentioned black workers having higher rates of occupational disease. Although that's true, a lot of white workers were harmed severely by pollution as well. The downriver suburbs of Detroit, which until right. recently, almost most of them were virtually all white, although they've gotten more diverse in, uh, over the last 20 years, um, they had some of the worst industrial pollution in the region. And of course, Flint is, I believe, over a third white. Um, and white families in that city were also poisoned. So, and moreover, um, the officials making these decisions were not all white, right? We also have to contend with the rise of an African-American political class and their role in imposing austerity policies. I, and in some cases, uh, you know, corruption like Kwame Kilpatrick. So I deal with all those nuances in the book. And um, I, that's why I imply this, employ this sort of broader concept of environmental justice. And to answer your question about who pushes back. So, Part, I would say half the book roughly is about the structural problems and half of it is about activism. And mm -hmm. I draw extensively on archival records of activism before the 70s and a lot of oral history interviews with activists since. And I actually make an argument. One of, so one argument in the book is sort of saying we have to look at things like finance and austerity to explain what happened in Detroit and Flint. The other argument I make is that to explain the origins of the environmental justice movement, we also have to look at labor unions. And I actually, I, I, I emphasize in particular this conference that Bunyan Bryan, I believe, attended in 1976, actually, sponsored yeah. by the United Auto Workers in Black Lake, Michigan. And that was one of the first places where the concept of environmental justice was popularized. And you had some African-American Southern civil rights activists were there from the Urban League in South Carolina. You had Native Americans, you had a lot of working class uh, whites, you had uh, union representatives, and you had the big conservation groups like the Audubon Society, Sierra Club, Isaac Walton League. This is one of the first times anybody brought those groups together was through the union movement. And so I, that's also part of the story I tell. 
I didn't mention my opening comments just because I didn't want to go in too many directions, but that's one of the interventions I make in the book. Mm. Jerry. Let me take it in just a slightly different direction. And let's talk about air as opposed to water. Sure. And, uh, you know, with, with full disclosure, I did work for an oil company for a while, but I also was head of Audubon California. So I've had both hats on. Mm -hmm. uh, the refineries, which get the worst marks as far as the public is concerned, yeah. uh, are located in areas surrounded by minority communities. Now, why are they surrounded by minority communities? The refiners were put in in the 19-teens and 1920s on vacant land, bean fields, yeah. uh, cornfields, et cetera. There's nothing around them. So the land was very cheap. So cheap land. Who bought that cheap land? The minority community bought the cheap land and lived right next to the refineries. The white community didn't buy that cheap land is what it amounts to. That's kind of point number one. And point number two, even though the refineries and chemical plants get the worst public um, opinions, that's not the major cause of pollution, at least in California. It's heavy duty diesel trucks. Mm -hmm. If we could solve the problem of diesel trucks, we would dramatically decrease the amount of pollution, uh, not only in the minority communities, but in all of our communities is what it amounts to. And our local South Coast uh, Air Quality Management District has been working away at that, but it's a very slow process because many of these truck drivers own trucks that cost $250,000, $300,000, they are depreciated over decades and they don't have an incentive to go out and buy a new truck with better equipment and, and better smog control is what it amounts to. So most of the work that I've done in the last few years is trying to get the diesel trucks to be cleaner or off the road. So my soapbox. Yeah, no, no, your points are well taken on the refineries. So um, I would agree with you that I think most of the scholarship on this argues that the disproportionate exposures are not caused by sort of corporate executives or public officials deciding to site facilities in communities of color out of intentional discrimination. It's much more complicated than that. And, and more often, it, people move into places, like you said, where the land values are cheaper. Um, I mean, I, and in general, I think the focus on intent um, and explaining disproportionate outcomes is largely a waste of time. And, and it's sort of impossible to prove. And it's really the, the wrong set of questions to be asking. I think the extent to which refineries in particular are a part of the air pollution problem also varies significantly around the country, right? So down here in Houston and the, the sort of petrochemical corridor from Houston over to Port Arthur and Beaumont, Texas on the Texas Gulf Coast side, and then of course in Louisiana between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, there are communities there that are very overburdened from air toxics from the petrochemical facilities. And they do have an abysmal safety record, which is partly about the failure of the state regulatory agencies and the weakness of, I think only 3% of air pollution violations are even prosecuted here in wow. the state of Texas. We have a pathetically weak state regulatory agency. But in many places in the country, it's true that, that automotive emissions, non-point source emissions are a bigger source. And I think that's true in Detroit too. So in the zip code of 48217, they are dealing with a lot of refinery emissions, but at, at the city level, it's much more, I think you're right about the, the vehicular emissions. Um, and that takes us back to, you know, the automobile industry, fuel safety standards, and the importance of, you know, dealing with, um, you know, the sort of corporate capture of regulatory agencies and making sure that we have strong air quality standards at the federal level and, you know, state level. I will just leave with one last point, which is California is not Texas. Our laws no. are extremely strict, I can assure you so. No, that's right, that's right, yeah. Okay, Bill. 
Yeah, I've a number of comments that may not be particularly organized. Um, first of all, in the business of which I was involved in for a while of building plants to burn garbage and generate power, it seemed like an environmentally good thing to do because it saves landfill space and it yeah. produces some right. useful energy and all that stuff. Right. And the plants were modern and very equipped with very good pollution controls and all that stuff. Mm -hmm but they still always encountered this syndrome, not in my backyard, which nobody wants them, even though they're in some objective sense, good things. In dealing with, with uh, nuclear waste, you know, the, the waste from nuclear weapons production, which I was involved with for a number of years here at the Savannah River site, uh, you know, the, the production of materials for nuclear weapons involved the running of reactors and then dissolving the materials from the reactors in chemicals and then extracting the useful stuff and putting the waste aside until later. And later, of course, has come finally. And so these places are getting cleaned up like the Savannah River site and Hanford and so on. Um, but the government undertook a program to uh, store these materials, you know, the, the high level waste, I'll just bother you with the technology a little bit. The high level waste is is uh, turned into uh, a concentrated material which is stored in glass logs. In other words, there's a glass melter that pours molten glass along with the waste into a container and it's highly resistant glass that'll last for many, many, many years. And there was a program to uh, uh, store this stuff in Yucca Mountain in Nevada. And uh, it seemed away from everything geologically stable and all that stuff. And uh, <coughs> There was a lot of local opposition on the part of some people in Nevada, uh, Harry Reid among them. And uh, so, I mean, I'm, I supported Barack Obama, but he decided to close down the repository at Yucca Mountain. So there's no place to send this stuff now. So right. it's being stored on site at the Savannah River site, which is not ideal. Yeah. But there's all kinds of problems like that. And uh, of course, worldwide, we have this enormous problem of global warming and uh, global warming and worldwide pollution with plastics, which never deteriorate and all that stuff, which is just horrendous. And your comments, uh, you know, here in this country, we're relatively well off. You know, we have our problems, of course, and there are serious hotspots. You know, the reason that Westinghouse got involved in the business of burning municipal, building plants to burn municipal waste was because Westinghouse was involved in a Superfund site at Bloomington, uh, Indiana, yeah. where Westinghouse had a plant that manufactured power transmission capacitors for many years. Mm -hmm. And they used this material called PCB oil, which had wonderful properties, wonderful properties. Uh, good heat conductivity, it would never deteriorate, high uh, electrical insulating properties and so on, but the PCBs were found to be harmful. And Westinghouse had been dumping the waste from this plant in the local landfill for years. And so to deal with this, Westinghouse decided to try and dig up the landfills and burn the material, hmm. which I don't think ever actually was done, but that was how we got into the business. So, and then of course the plastics, I mean, overall, you look at the big, you know, these reefs of plastics out in the middle of the ocean which are getting in the food chain, you know, mm -hmm. uh, causing all kinds of problems. And you talk about the people, the poorest people suffer the most. You think of Bangladesh, for example, 
which is being flooded more and more by the by the rise of sea level. I mean, these are horrendous problems, which somehow we have to come to grips with. I'm not smart enough to do that, but somehow we have to do that. Otherwise, we're headed for disaster. No, I, I agree. And can I just comment on a couple of things you said? I, so I don't know if any of you got a chance to look at other. So I, I shared one sample chapter that focused on the water shutoff question, but I have actually, actually the chapter before that discusses how combustion engineering and other firms involved in the nuclear power industry were shifting into trash, trash incineration in the 70s. And Detroit opened the largest, what at that time was the largest municipal trash incinerator, I think, in the world in 1989. It was later outpaced by one in Indiana. I think there's a bigger one in China now. But in 1989, this is the biggest in the world. And Detroit ended up taking out hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in, in bond debt to these Wall Street banks to construct the incinerator. The city was in all this debt in 1991 and sold the incinerator to Philip Morris Tobacco or its financial subsidiary and General Electric. And Philip Morris, the cigarette giant, got $200 million in tax breaks for owning this incinerator in Detroit for 17 years in a predominantly poor black neighborhood on the east side of Detroit. And this incinerator was constantly in violation of air quality laws. It was uh, violating EPA standards on dioxin emissions, uh, lead and mercury, and of course, pumping out all this particulate matter, fine particulate matter in neighborhood in a neighborhood with a high rate of asthma and a high rate of child lead poisoning. So the cigarette company could get big tax breaks. So it's a really egregious example of sort of corporate welfare in the case, and I also tell a story about the movement to shut it down. The, the, this is an interesting case, right? Because in the 70s, there was a problem of landfill costs rising because of the energy crisis at that time. And because with the growth of the suburbs and the increasing volume of trash people are throwing away, you know, these trucks have to drive further out to bigger landfills to deal with the trash generation capacity of cities and their suburbs. And this is part of what goes on. Also, the incineration industry was lobbying municipal governments to construct incinerators. And you have all these cities in the country that are losing manufacturing investment and they're facing fiscal crises during the Gerald Ford administration, right? This is when, you know, he famously, there's that headline, you know, uh, Ford to New York dropped dead. So all these cities are on the verge of bankruptcy. They're losing jobs. And so incinerators are seen as a possible source of tax revenues, right? And Detroit does it, but South Central LA gets an incinerator, Camden, New Jersey gets an incinerator, Chester, Pennsylvania. These are largely poor minority areas embracing the incinerators. And you get a situation where these affluent white suburbs of Detroit are being subsidized. Essentially, they get cheaper trash disposal costs. Now, my understanding is that incinerators that are built in places like Germany and Japan have pretty high pollution control standards. So if you're going to do incineration you, and you spend a lot of money on pollution control, then the public health risks are pretty minimal. But the incinerator they built in Detroit was profoundly flawed in terms of the pollution control technology they used in that specific case. More broadly, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that incinerators are a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions. They're, more, they're worse in terms of a CO2 per ton than a coal-fired power plant. Uh, at least that that the type that Detroit had. So if you're concerned with greenhouse gas emissions, you don't want that kind of incinerator. I mean, I, I think uh, we, we have to talk about recycling centers and changes in uh, 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 
you know, product design standards. I think of Kate Raworth's concept of donut economics, where things are not just built to be disposed of. But these are much bigger questions. Obviously, if you're talking about an entire society's waste stream, then it's not just one industry being regulated. I'll just offer a couple of comments. You know, by the time Westinghouse got in this business, the standards for air pollution control had evolved considerably from what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, the there were several companies that built what I'll call modern waste combustion plants, which were equipped with very, very high quality air pollution controls so that there was essentially no particulate matter and yeah. no toxic gases coming out of the stack. However, you had CO2 and water coming out of the stack. There's no yeah. way around that. Yeah. And from a per uh, fuel, you know, for, as a fuel, garbage is not a great fuel. No. So, no, it's so not. You, you had a lot of problems with operating those plants. It was abrasive and corrosive. The boilers would deteriorate yeah. from the gases and all that stuff. And that's inescapable. Uh, but the problem is, what are you going to do with the waste? Yeah. You know, do you send it all to landfill? You talk about recycling. What can be recycled? In, yeah. uh, in Japan, you know, I visited places in Japan where they do this. And the Japanese, of course, have a history. Mm -hmm of somehow being very, very frugal and, and using everything in order to live in that tiny mountainous country with a huge population for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and so they recycle and reuse everything they can. They still end up with stuff they can't get rid of and they end up having to burn it or landfill it. And it's, it's part of our system. And, uh, it's, it's very hard to get away from, you know, it's really a serious yeah. challenge. Right. But of course, if you have a situation where if you have a city like Detroit, where you have a city that's almost 80% black surrounded by suburbs, three quarters of which are over 90% white. And you have suburbs that are very affluent, right? Where the median income is over 90,000, 150,000 in the case of places like Bloomfield Hills. And you have a city like Detroit where the per capita income is closer to say 20,000 and the life expectancy is 10 years shorter than the suburbs. The suburbs are sending their trash into the city. That's clearly an unjust arrangement. Now, the poverty in Detroit is not as great as the poverty in Bangladesh or Mali, certainly, but it, it's such that a third of the population can barely afford running water. So we clearly have an un unfair situation here, right? Where the region's trash. I think these things can operate as sort of waste magnets for a whole region. I mean, even you know, Windsor, Ontario was sending its trash over to Detroit. And so it's cheap for all of these more affluent communities. Um, so, you know, there, there are questions about regional and urban planning here. There are questions about air quality regulation. There are questions about recycling versus landfilling, but something clearly has to change. And it's clearly an uh, unfair situation. David. That facility changed, closed in 2019, by the way. So it's now a matter of history. David. Um, let me say what a pleasure your presentation uh, weaving together the numerous factors involved in outcomes here. Let me put it this way. I only wish I could be seen as doing something so sophisticated. Um, if I followed correctly, I what ultimately came to describe as a legacy of the New Deal. Mm -hmm. uh, have I got it right that, in fact, it's the New Deal as uh, beat down and killed by neoliberalism? That's fundamentally the story that... Well, so, 
so th th this is the way I would put it. Um, there's a familiar story that we've been hearing from sort of left liberals, um, uh, from you know people like Paul Krugman or Joseph Stiglitz to the and on to the left for a long time, right? Critiquing neoliberalism and talking about um, uh, the reduction in economic inequality that we saw in this country for three decades after World War II and then how it's been increasing since the Reagan years. That's an old story, it's very familiar. Um, however, it's usually not connected to the environment or environmental justice. And I'm trying to sort of connect the dots here, right? Because I think that if you look at the New Deal from an environmental and public health perspective, you can see some very good things and some very bad things. On the good side, what I show in Detroit is that um, I, I go all the way back to the Gilded Age in the late 19th century, the first couple chapters of the book. And if you look at public health from a long-term perspective, the New Deal was important in eliminating, for example, waterborne disease by financing large-scale investments in sewage treatment. So in Detroit, the first year where typhoid deaths were not detected was in 1940. That's because the federal government through the Public Works Administration had paid for the city's first sewage treatment plant. Before the New Deal, cities had to finance these things by going into debt or by raising taxes. And it was beyond the means on a fiscal level of local governments to pay for this kind of large scale infrastructure. So the New Deal initiates federal aid to cities. It, in the case of Detroit, it rebuilds the city's infrastructure. And it also created almost 100,000 public works jobs about a third of which went to African-Americans, by the way, uh, rebuilding the city's water and sewer lines, building post offices, building roads. Um, and then of course, in World War II, uh, the city is converted to defense production and the federal government creates even more jobs, ending the Great Depression. So the New Deal uh, does make it possible to reduce waterborne disease. The New Deal also includes things like investments in public health programs uh, that, and then of course, labor laws that are pushed by the unions, but enabled by people like, like Senator Wagner, you know, in the Wagner Act, make it possible to have these industrial unions, which among other things, negotiate for higher wages and health benefits for their members. Now, in terms of race, African-Americans, as we know, are disproportionately impacted by things like the exclusion of domestic and farm workers from New Deal labor protections. And then of course, the housing agencies redline communities of color and some immigrant communities and this means that the suburbs that are financed through, you know, federally subsidized FHA loans and the, the um, you know, the, the GI Bill after the war go virtually only to whites. So in 1968, there were zero black homeowners in 16 of the suburbs surrounding Detroit, even though the city was almost half African-American at that point. So African-Americans were completely excluded from the suburban boom. And that's also a legacy of the New Deal. So there are some good things, you know, overall rates of infectious disease fall. African-Americans do benefit from the unionization of the auto industry, but very little is done on, on questions of racial discrimination, except for the sort of temporary fair employment practices committee during the war pushed by people like A. Philip Randolph. And the New Deal included essentially no environmental regulations or occupational health and safety regulations. You don't get those things until the very end of the post-war boom in the Nixon years, right? Um, so in other words, you know, we have this debate about the New Deal legacy right now. This is associated, of course, with Ta-Nehisi Coates' piece on reparations in the Atlantic, which many people read, or books like Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, talking about redlining. 
So I, I make a nuanced argument about the New Deal legacy with regard to environmental justice. On the one hand, I say that you know, African Americans benefited less than whites, both environmentally and economically. On the other hand, I say that they were harmed more by the dismantling of the New Deal legacy in the sense that the shredding of the welfare state, for example, made low-income families disproportionately Black more vulnerable to having their water shut off by the city. And, and I specifically show in the chapter I shared with you all how welfare reform included ending utility bill assistance for poor families. That had disproportionate impacts on African-Americans, but it also impacted low-income whites. Um, similarly, the shredding, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, the shredding of the, the New Deal banking regulations um, from the Reagan years onward, leads directly to the subprime mortgage crisis. And it leads in some ways to the bankruptcy of Detroit because it, the deregulation of swaps and derivatives played a big role in Detroit's debt. So this is also a complex story. We have, to, If we really wanted to get into the weeds, we'd also have to talk about the state of Michigan and its role in all of this. But the, the long and the short of it is that um, despite the shortcomings of the New Deal, there were some positive things like banking regulations, a welfare state, uh, empowering labor unions in some ways, and, and, and getting rid of all of that has contributed to environmental injustice. Let me just offer a few sort of random comments sort of leading to a question which you may love or hate, which is, do you have any prescriptions uh, uh, based on what you, you've written? What, what I found troubling and it's sort of discouraging when I dug into this and, and did some work with community groups and, uh, and, and with the, uh, the Federal uh, National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, though it was during a dormant period under the Bush administration. So I quit as did lots of other people. Um, it seems to me in environmental justice, uh, as, as a sort of a, a, an area of activism is a combination of environmental protection uh, objectives, civil rights objectives and poverty concerns uh, with the possible separate addition of land use and housing concerns. And what I'm really impressed with is that you are linking it into broader social programs. Uh, and I, I haven't heard that done before. Uh, uh, and, and I just, I think that's wonderful and scary, <laughs> um, to be honest about it. Um, um, and frankly, in, in looking at those three areas of law that I'm familiar with and merging them together, including now, say, at land use as a separate area, any one of those areas is so complicated, is so difficult, that I, at times I wonder if it's really helpful to merge them all under one heading. Um, and that's, it, it, it seems to me, it almost guarantees a sense of we're not making any progress uh, when, you, when you lump them all together. Uh, just a couple other uh, quick notes. Um, uh, you mentioned some uh, concerns internationally and, and I, it, it, it has always seemed to me that issues of, of, of uh, maldistribution uh, have, were recognized earlier in the environmental world uh, internationally than they were uh, domestically. And that goes back to the 1972 Stockholm, uh, UN Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment in which I believe it was Indira Gandhi uh, and some others spoke out very, very harshly about how the, the Northern wealthier countries were 
treating the southern poorer countries so so un, unfairly. Um, the, the last thing I'll, I'll offer is um, one of the things that struck me in, in, in doing my, my research and writing on this, um, and relying on a lot of the same folks you've, you've mentioned, and, and John, uh, John, you remind me, I sat next to Bunyan Bryan at lunch at uh, Michigan uh, some years ago, and uh, I was just, I was really taken with the man. What, a, what, a, what an impressive, wonderful, wonderful person. Um, um, but it, it occurred to me at the beginning of the environmental movement, and I started working in environmental law in 1970, uh, the objective was, uh, or the concern was the effect of people on the environment. Uh, and now we sort of broadly switch it around and say the concern is for environmental uh, policies and uh, activities on people. Uh, and uh, that that's anything other than acute observation, but I think it's somewhat descriptive. I guess the last thing I'll say is you've referred a number of times, and I've, I've noticed, uh, Josiah, you said, well, it's not a citing issue. It's not a citing issue. And I've, I've been a little, I was a little concerned when I was doing my first uh, dig, deep dive into this, that citing being the clearest, most obvious dramatic instances of unfairness in the way environmental policies uh, were, were exemplified, um, but it's not the only one. Uh, and, and the other two areas that I identified were enforcement, enforcement policies, which I suspect have a lot to do with what say Jerry is referring to as to uh, uh, air pollution enforcement issues. And the other is access and participation. So I was struck by your comment that some of the decision makers in the Detroit, situ in the Detroit situation were, uh, were minority folks. I do recognize that in trying to connect all these dots, it can seem like um, it only adds to an already overwhelming menu, right? Of, of problems that we face. But I actually end the book like in the epilogue with a defense of the Green New Deal, not necessarily the exact uh, language of the resolution put forward by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in December 2018 and January 2019 with Ed Markey, uh, but with the sort of broad framework. And uh, I recognize that this might sound hopelessly utopian, especially with the defeat of Build Back Better and what appears to be, you know, the, the sort of looming loss of Congress possibly by the Democrats. And we, we could have a conversation about, you know, what did and didn't go wrong and where, where we stand right now with the balance of forces in Washington. Um, but I think the bottom line, right, is that if you look at a place like Detroit um, and you think about the fact that we need to decarbonize um, the electric grid, we need to push for at a minimum more electric vehicles, we need to, to close coal-fired power plants, right? We need to sharply cut greenhouse gas emissions. But we also have these communities where the, you know, civil engineers have been giving the infrastructure the equivalent of a D minus or an F for, you know, 10, 20 years now. In Detroit, you know, you have something like 125,000 lead service lines under the streets. The average sewer pipe or water line is about 95 years old. You have all these crumbling streets. Um, so we need, we badly need a large scale public investment program. Um, I, you know, you look at China and they built, you know, tens of thousands of miles of high speed rails over the past 10 years. Whereas in the United States, you know, we struggle to get any sort of infrastructure passed. And one of the reasons I talk so much about the new deal is you have to go back to that period to find a time 
when we really rebuilt the country's infrastructure. Of course, you know, you had the building of the interstate highways after the war, but I'm talking about the water and the sewer infrastructure. It really hasn't been since then in a lot of parts of the country. And we need something like that. Uh, and, you know, the Green New Deal talks about the idea of a green jobs guarantee. And again, it's very hard to, to think about something like a jobs guarantee getting through Congress. But from the beginning with the environmental movement, um, there's been a recognition that we, we can't completely separate questions of poverty, unemployment, social justice from larger questions of environmental protection. I mean, take the case of West Virginia, right? Um, West Virginia didn't flip to the Republican party until 2016 and it steadily voted Democrat. And the Republicans are heavily pushing this jobs versus the environment line with coal mining communities. And they're saying, you know, the Democrats wanna destroy the coal industry and that's gonna make you poor. The Republicans will deregulate, they'll give you coal mining jobs. Now, the only way to address that is to look at what the labor unions have said, which is, you know, you can't just have vague talk about a just transition. There has to be real assistance. Tony Mazaki, the legislative director of the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union called it a super fund for workers. Um, but there has to be some, we, we, we have to address the material needs of these communities. We have to rebuild the infrastructure and we need to decarbonize. And we know from the, the, the civil rights and the racial justice critique of all of this that we have to address the legacies of discrimination. And at least something like the Green New Deal tries to bring them together in a single framework. There's a strategic debate to be had about whether it all should be in the same bill but there needs to be a bigger progressive movement that is simultaneously fighting for public investment, strengthening environmental protection and rebuilding the social safety net. And, and you know, labor unions and groups and anti-poverty groups need to be working with environmental groups. And in Detroit, I show how those coalitions uh, have emerged, but I don't think there's any alternative, right? Like, like in a place like Detroit, there's no alternative to cleaning up the pollution to cutting greenhouse gas emissions and to addressing the emergencies of poverty. So th th these things have to happen at the same time, but, I, but there certainly needs to be a robust debate about you know, what that actually looks like in terms of concrete legislation and how, how it could get through Congress. But it, I don't think it can just be done with sort of local small-scale experiments. We need I, bold action. I, Professor Rector, have you to me, the big resource allocation issues are crucial and putting more into environmentally damaging neighborhood destroying pork is not good. Uh, putting uh, mega resources into um, other things is good. And I want to know if you looked at uh, the way the older David Rockefeller, the one, the late David Rockefeller, who's no longer with us, pushed for Renaissance Center in Detroit and, <laughs> and driving out the people who once lived in that neighborhood for a, a project that totally failed financially and in every other way, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I haven't specifically looked at Rockefeller's role, although there's a good book about the building of the Renaissance Center by a Detroit-based scholar activist named Gloria House called Tower and Dungeon, where she looks at uh, the sort of planning process 
around the Renaissance Center. But, you know, what I, I, I would put it in the following context. In 1950, there were 349,000 manufacturing jobs in the city of Detroit. By 2007, there's 23,000 left. So the city lost 300,000 manufacturing jobs. Now, the, the, the auto companies remain headquartered in and around Detroit. And, you know, they still have, you know, this, this office building in, in, in downtown, but they completely disinvested from the surrounding area. And yes, I mean, I think the, the legacy of urban renewal is still very much on the minds of people in Detroit because there was a big controversy, for example, over this proposal called Detroit Future City in 2013, which proposed to decommission infrastructure in about a third of the city. And the problem is that the city is built for 2 million people, but now it only has around 700,000 because of all the depopulation. And there is a real problem given the city's existing tax base with maintaining all that infrastructure. But a lot of people, you know, there's real scarring from the tens of thousands of African-American families who were displaced in urban renewal projects in the 50s and 60s. And their neighborhoods were destroyed to build highways like I-75 um, and I-94. And, you know, urban renewal is associated with quote unquote Negro removal, right? For a lot of African-Americans who have roots in the city. And so telling people to leave um, is a really a non-starter uh, for, for a lot of these historical reasons. Um, now, th- there are a lot of counter proposals and other ways to, to address you know, these problems that, that, that we could talk about. But yeah, the, 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 the wounds of urban renewal are very much with us as you all know. And as you all also, I'm sure know, this occurred across the entire country. So Detroit is hardly unique in this respect. Well, listen, we've been talking for about an hour and uh, 15 minutes, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor, for coming on. Well, thank you so much, Kent, and thanks to everyone uh, for participating. I really appreciated uh, getting to learn from from you all um, as as much as vice versa, I hope, Um, and this was delightful. So thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Assistant Professor Josiah Rector from the University of Houston. His new book is titled Toxic Debt, Race, Capitalism, and the Struggle for Environmental Justice in Detroit. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.